Okay, so I'm Richard Pullman. I'm here with Syntarsis, and he's one of the members of GDG. Uh, we got him on just tonight. He wanted to uh, talk about his system and some of the, you know, opinions and issues that we all have with RPGs and design, game design. So we're happy to have him on. Why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us about uh, who you are and the game that you're making. Hello, uh, good to be here. My name is Syntarsis. I, uh, I'm a forever GM. Um, so, you know, I love, uh, theory crafting and all that. Um, I am currently developing a system, uh, that I call plug and play Pokemon. And it is so called because the primary goal of the system is to be able to sort of take the mechanics and the stats and plug them in and just start playing. Hmm. Okay. So, what made you want to design that particular system? Because there's other tabletop Pokemon games, if I'm correct, and you must have found something lacking in them. Yeah, the um, the primary problem that I had with uh, with a, there there were a few common problems that I had, uh, and then there were a few uh, system specific problems. The so the most prominent tabletop. Uh, Pokemon system. If you're not familiar with the community, I'm not. Is, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think most people are. Um, I think a lot of I see every now and then. It's like uh, twice a month. Somebody will float like, "Hey, how can I uh, run a Pokemon game or a Pokemon?" Usually, it's a Pokemon Mystery Dungeon game. Um, somebody will float that on TG, and it will die in like 20 posts or less. Uh, so there, I think there's interest, but it's sort of one of those things that's been sort of deemed impossible. Oh yeah. And, um, part of that is because of the failure of the Pokemon tabletop, uh, series. So there's, uh, Pokemon tabletop adventures and Pokemon tabletop united. And if you talk to anybody who's actually played a session of them, uh, they are most notable for being ungodly complex. Um, and, uh, Which you wouldn't I, expect for a kid's game that, you know, Pokemon the video game isn't that complex. Right, exactly. And so one of the, that, I, one of the main problems with them is, uh, that complexity. But I think the bigger problem is that in order to play a Pokemon game, you basically need to learn an entirely new system. Um, and that's true for all of the Pokemon games. There's no, there, there isn't really a system where, uh, your intuitions from the games or from the anime are uh, backed up in the in the actual uh, mechanical uh, you know components of the system. Yeah, in the tabletop um, versions that they make. Right. Yeah. So, so I, I know I've heard recently. I was listening to a guy talk about um, his experience porting over games into tabletop, and he was saying that there is a lot of sacrifices you have to make in order to uh, recreate the feeling of the game and sometimes that's the hard part is that you sort of have to uh, bend the logic of the system so it's it's not faithful anymore but in a sense you recreate some of the experiences you have and you have to kind of just take a slice out of the game the video game in order to make it work on a tabletop but you're saying that that doesn't even work properly because it just becomes bogged down and I'm imagining if it, if you're saying it's that complex, then 
it's it's kind of just intimidating and off-putting to even play the game. Right. Well, so one of the one of the problems is actually that uh the people who made Pokémon Tabletop United uh and to Pokémon Tabletop Adventures tried to keep a lot of the subsystems of the games present in the tabletop game. Mm. Um, like what kind so, of subsystems would it be? Cause I'm, I'm familiar with some of the oldest Pokemon games and I don't know what they've all added in the more recent generations, but what would be an example of something that you would like, you, you shouldn't have included this? Uh, well, so the, one of the most complex subsystems in the Pokemon games are actually, um, the way Pokeballs work. Uh, so, for example, the, uh, the way that they work is this long, complex equation with, uh, you know, multi, uh, multi-variable equation. And, um, a lot of the factors that are included in the calculations in the game, uh, are present in the, uh, Tabletop United. Uh, Tabletop United is kind of the, the more popular one. Right. Cause it's actually, it's like a streamlining actually of, uh, of uh, tabletop adventures. Okay, so like Pokeballs, uh, it's trying to ca- calculate obviously a lot of stuff so that it can't be abused by players, I imagine, and you can kind of have, you know, realistic or true to the game sort of feeling of how hard it is to catch something. I imagine that would be their justification for it. So what, what would you find is the problem when you're actually playing it in the tabletop version? Yeah, so uh, when when you're catching a Pokemon... It, um, it, it's sort of the culmination, right? So it's, it's the climax of the battle, if you will. All right. Yeah. Particularly when it's a, uh, particularly powerful Pokemon. So if you're trying to capture a legendary Pokemon, for example. Yeah. And, um, trying to add all these different factors in, uh, makes calculating everything much more difficult and it slows down the game. Right, so you're at the climax. This is when it should be just roll the dice and find out what your result is, right? So because you're excited and you want to see exactly, yeah, the release of tension, right? Uh, So if we think about it narratively, we've had the uh, building action that was the entire rest of the fight. We've reached the climax, and now it should be falling action. Mm. And um, stopping to calculate all these different. all these different uh, factors that play into it uh, bogs things down and it ruins the climax in a way. Because then you start, it, it basically uh, yanks you back into uh, remembering that you're sitting around a table uh, rolling dice pretending to be uh, dogfighters, right? Right. And so, so you- and honestly, I'm not even, I'm not even really that against including math because we do, as tabletop gamers, we do a lot of math casually that we just never think about, right? So just to take D&D, for example, in D&D, uh, you roll, you roll your dice and you, so you roll your D20, add whatever that number is to your other modifier and then calculate that and compare it to AC. So that's like, what, three different steps? Yeah. Right. But it's it's sort of streamlined enough and uh, convenient enough that we don't really think about it as gamers. It's just something that we automatic like it becomes our way of interacting with the game universe, if you like. Yeah, and it's consistent enough that you just adapt to it and integrate it. Right. Exactly. So the the actual numbers that change 
from like the very the variable numbers are not really that common or that variable. So, you know, it's it's like a number between 1 and 30, right? Right. Yeah. Or, you know, even calculating damage. Like, in D- once again, in D&D, uh, calculating damage can be uh, adding up to, like, six or eight numbers together to find right. out what you, how, how badly you hurt the thing. But it's convenient enough and fast enough that we integrate it into our understanding of the game universe. Yeah, personally, I don't like rolling that many dice for damage, and I've, I have a lot of problems with the basic way that D&D works. But I do, un- I do totally appreciate that you can get used to it, and then it's just part of the excitement of getting to roll a bunch of dice and it feeling like, you know, obviously you're hoping for that big number, you add it together, and it doesn't take a long time as long as you're not terrible mm-hmm. at math. Right. And, you know, even if you are terrible at math, everybody has a calculator on their phone. That's true. And so yeah. what your point is with the, the Pokemon system that wasn't working properly is that there was already a feeling in the game that obviously justified, you know, the game is super, extremely popular, and obviously people love that climax of catching something, and yet when the system sort of fails to capture that feeling... Uh, it betrays all the expectations that you would have as a player going into it. Exactly. Yeah. And um, one of the well, one of the other things that uh, is a problem is, um, and it's one of the things that you don't even think about. So if you were, so for example, um, if you had like six monsters on your belt that you you know could breathe fire and shoot poison and, uh, you know, create electric light, uh, lightning strikes and all the rest of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, suddenly you were attacked and, you know, by a wild Pokemon. In the games, you're limited to one Pokemon, right? But it, otherwise, in, uh, Pokemon Tabletop United, one of the things they explicitly allow is you can use as many Pokemon as you like. What? That's bizarre. And that, yeah, yeah, and exactly. And it, it's one of the things that, it's one of the other problems with the games is that, now you are having to use, uh, you're having to basically handle seven character sheets, up to seven character sheets in a battle. That's crazy. Yeah, exactly. And so the rules explicitly say that you can do that. Is there and any it's one of those things? Sorry. Is there any like benefit to only having one out, or is it pretty much you're stupid if you're not using all of them? Um, to my, there might be like some modifiers. Uh, I can't remember offhand if there are any. Uh, drawbacks to having all your Pokemon out. But, um, one of the things that I explicitly, so when I set about making my, my system, one of the rules I explicitly set was, uh, that you can only have one Pokemon out. And so it, it, one of the aspects of Pokemon is that it quick, right? So when there's a type advantage or a type disadvantage, you feel that right away. Yeah, for sure. Right? Yeah. As long as the Pokemon are on par level wise. Um, and so that's one of the other things I wanted to sort of capture in my system. And um, based off the playtest I've done, I feel like I did a pretty good job of that. But um, to get back to what we were talking about, I went on a tangent there. Um, it, it, it's one of those things that actually, you know, it, if you don't think about it, it doesn't make sense. But, like, even if you think about it in the context of the game, the, you know, first, like, imagine if you went out and captured 
six four-year-old and uh, put them in a cage match, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, you able to direct each of them in combat, it would be uh, it would be chaos. So I, it's one of those things that, uh, like, it, it, in certain ways, like you said at the beginning, uh, breaking rules of the system to create the fee or breaking rules of the games to create the feel of the games, um, is one of the things that's really important when you're translating across mediums. Right. But what I've found is that a lot of the times keeping limitations from the games is just as important. Because if you start removing limitations, then it can suddenly become a totally different game. Yeah, like, personally for me, it doesn't make any sense in the video games why you couldn't throw multiple Pokeballs and release your dudes and send them all out. But who cares? That's the strategic element of the game. It's a rock, paper, scissors sort of format. So you have to be careful who you have out. And you could make an argument that it doesn't make for a, a manageable fight if you have multiple Pokemon out on your side and this kind of stuff. So I'm very surprised to hear that they actually did that. Uh, and I agree that the limitations, they're there for a reason. There's a reason why they don't allow you to have a bunch out in the video games. And so you, you said that this was a plug-and-play. What kind of... Uh, how do you structure it so that there's elements that you can essentially ignore if you don't want to put them in the game? Uh, how um, Are you asking about modularity? Yeah, I imagine from what you said about being a plug-and-play system that you... Because that's actually one of the things that a recent guest on the show talked about was the idea of having a sort of universal system that can handle a lot of things, but you don't have to use all of the subsystems. You can kind of uh, pick and tool the cho- pick and choose the tools that you want to use from that. So do you have this sort of similar philosophy in designing it that you want to have modularity and optional components? Um, in a sense, the what I really tried to do was I tried to boil down into the base components and say, all right, what do we absolutely need in a Pokemon game to make it feel like Pokemon, right? And so, to me at least, one of the things that... Um, one, of, one of the appeals to me that I mentioned earlier, I'm a forever GM, mm-hmm. and one of the things that appeals to me about running a Pokemon game is essentially uh, you have an 800-monster bestiary uh, at your fingertips when you set something in the Pokemon universe, right? Yeah. So it's uh, very, a very, um, and it's one of the things in the official Pokemon media, there's a lot of uh, space that hasn't been, a storytelling space that is, that hasn't been explored yet. So I think that it's a, it's a right, that it makes sense to me that people keep wanting to come back to this setting uh, because there's a lot of opportunity there to sort of explore and uh, create new stories. So one of the things that I really wanted to do was to be able to have versatility as far as the creatures that you can encounter and the different beasts and, um, you know, the different Pokemon that you can encounter and still maintain their unique feel while keeping the system playable, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because having to look up... uh, Having to look up a bunch of stuff that you don't necessarily, um, or essentially having to learn a brand new system is always intimidating. And having to look a bunch of stuff up in that system and having to have like three different PDFs for all of the, yeah, you know, like one for the rules, one for the dungeon master, one for the monsters, 
you know, D&D can get away with that, but, uh, I, I, I think that that's a little bit annoying because I personally don't like PDFs that much. Yeah, I totally agree. So, um, essentially what I've been doing is I, uh, have been looking for ways to translate the, uh, stats of the games into a tabletop format. So, uh, each of the, each of the six stats, you can basically take, take a Pokemon from the games and use their stats in the game. Oh, I see. And so it's, you plug the stats in and then you can start playing. There's sort of a direct conversion that, that works. Right, exactly. That's and I, the... I think that I've uh, done a pretty good job with that. That, and that's why you call it plug and play is because you can actually, uh, convert things very easily from the video games into the system. Right, exactly. Oh, okay. I was misunderstanding. I thought you meant there's whole sections and subsystems of the tabletop game that are optional, but that makes perfect sense. You're, you're familiar with the games. You have, you could even then presumably, you know, recreate specific, um, team, you know, setups with your different Pokemon. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, that's, that's kind of one of the major goals is like to be able to take the, you know, everybody I think has had the, experience of when they're playing the games going, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I could, why do I have to teach one of my Pokemon cut, you know? Wouldn't mm. it be cool if I could do this or that? And so, uh, this system kind of allows you to do that in the context of a tabletop game. That makes perfect sense. Uh, you said that you've play tested it. Where would you say the game is in terms of completion? Um, the, the thing that I was the most worried about was the combat system. Um, and I, I tested that Fairly um, I think that that's uh, very good. I actually posted a PDF of that a while back in the um, uh, GDG Discord server. Right. Um, and uh, I'm actually working on a second draft of that right now. Uh, most of the uh, rules as far as non-combat things go actually didn't make it into that draft, um, just because I've been focusing on getting the combat playable for so long. Um so if you if you want I could talk about sort of what the central mechanic is. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So essentially what I am uh what I'm working with is uh it's a sort of percentile roll under system. Right. So you try to you have a percentage chance of doing something and then you roll again. Um and so that that works for both Pokemon and people. So when you basically you can take the moves from the game. Um, you, you know, you look them up on, uh, Bulbapedia or whatever thing it is, and then you write them down on your character sheet. And so when you want to use a move, you roll against the accuracy of that move. Like the official accuracy that's in, coded in the games? Right, exactly. Cause all the, all, this is actually one of the things that was quite easy, is that all have an accuracy yeah. rating, the person that they'll hit. So you just roll against that, and then, uh, since it's a tabletop game, there are various modifiers that affect how likely you are to hit. So one of the things that I did to, well, I, I'll, I'll come back to, I'll, I'll come back to combat and movement in a second. But, uh, the, basically depending on your placement, it can, you know, different factors in combat can affect that. So apply penalties and uh, bonuses to your accuracy score for move. That sounds like a really smart way of, of constructing the whole thing because the more you can, you're essentially cheating by importing all, all all the data, the hard rules and data from the existing games. And not only does that 
spare you the work of having to do it all yourself, but it allows people to use their existing knowledge and expertise from the system and the games in the in the tabletop, and it should work the same way. Right, exactly. And that was exactly what the intention was. Um, and so players, basically, I, I split up. Um, I, I can talk about character creation uh, as well, but basically players have different skills, and so those skills uh, act as modifiers to whatever their... Uh, to their roles. So anytime a player character wants to do a check, they roll against one of their skills. And then, uh, based off, you know, the DC that the DM provides, they succeed or fail at that. Okay. So in that sense, it's pretty standard. Yeah. Which is good so because the... it means more people who are familiar with just, you know, D and D and typical uh, RPG setup will be able to get into it more easily too, because for myself, I w- I'm not that familiar with Pokemon, but I know how these other systems work. I can pl- start playing it and it wouldn't take me that much to, you know, get the basics of how that game works. Right. Exactly. Um, one of the, uh, yeah. And so like what you said, it's, uh, it's fairly similar to D and D in a lot of respects. Um, and so my group, uh, primarily plays Pathfinder much to my chagrin. Mm. Um, and so they were able to pick it up very easily. So, but you you didn't quite answer how far you said uh, you are to completion. Would you say that you're basic? You see, you're done the first draft. You're working on the second draft, and if assuming that that's good enough, then yeah. The the primary thing that I'm working on adding in the second draft is uh, sort of advice for role playing and character creation, um, creating campaigns, things like that. Okay, yeah. Uh, so I'm working on fleshing out the actual uh, tabletop aspect of it. Well, one of the um, things I wanted to get into with you is is if you say that you're the forever GM, uh, one of the things I find very interesting is somebody who doesn't GM much, and I'm very I'm always happy to talk to people who GM a lot and get insight from them on how to make a system work and how to maximize different parts of it and that kind of stuff, but. I imagine as a game designer, you're approaching it from a very different perspective than a player might if you're designing a system because you have to have a lot in mind already of, you know, conveniences and systems that you as the forever GM would like to see. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that a lot of people, a lot of people who are players and then transition over to GMing uh, have trouble with is the idea of basically encouraging character growth because, you know, a player, a player is sort of the master of their own character. So whatever they want their character to do happens, right? To, you know, as long as it doesn't interfere with the GM's domain. And then the GM is the master of the world. So the GM's domain stops where the player character's free will begins is kind of the, traditional view of that mm-hmm. but i think one of the things that's really um underrated and not really talked about in a lot of sort of introductory uh, gm texts say uh you know just to use pathfinder as an example again um is how to encourage character and basically how to communicate how you want your players to grow their characters yeah, um, and I, know. I know that that's a skill that it took me a long time to develop. So you're going to put in advice into your system, presumably that covers that same thing of constructing campaigns and 
story arcs and uh, sort of incentives to for people to grow their characters. Yeah, exactly. And um, what, so I'll kind of uh, to give a preview of what that will look like. One of the things that I always try to um, make sure um, I I do this with sort of campaigns that are intended to be very short is um, make sure that they have a character goal and uh, not just a sort of something vague, but something, you know, personal to that character. So um, the three uh, characteristics that I like to see in a character goal are it should be personal, it should be specific and attainable, and it should be not disruptive. So, you know, what... What, what do I mean by that? I, I think um, a lot of people un- kind of understand what I mean by those things, but to, uh, you know, sort of give an example to people who might not. Um, one of uh, one of the things that I actually found quite interesting when I started thinking about it is that the three sort of goals that the Pokemon games and media give the player are actually uh, terrible character goals for uh, tabletop characters. You mean gotta catch them all? Well, so there were there are three that I've identified. So, gotta catch them all, um, being the very best, and uh, in the games at least beating Team Rocket. All right, yeah, yeah. So each of those is kind of bad for different reasons. Um, they they all share some reasons. So uh, I'll take being the very best first. So if you being the very best is a bad character goal because it's not specific, and. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's not really personal either. It's, um, you know, there are a million people out in the Pokemon world who would like to be the Pokemon master, but they don't quit their day jobs, so to speak, right? Yeah, it's kind of a generic ideal that anybody could have. Right, exactly. And so, like, I think that's a great way of putting it, is generic ideals are not character goals, right? So a character goal is something that is specific to that person. So it's something that that person wants to achieve. Like a Charmander and, killed my parents, and now I want to go and kill all the Charmanders. <laughs> well, so that kind of runs into one of the other ones, is uh, it should be attainable, right? right. Or, I'm sorry, uh, it actually runs into both of them, because that would also be really disruptive. Mm-hmm. Right? Because then you're chasing down every Charmander. You know, it, it could actually that could actually work with, like, a legendary Pokemon, because there's a limited number of them. So the GM could, part, you know, potentially include them in the campaign. Yeah. Right? So, it, like, getting vengeance on a specific uh, individual, I think, is a great character goal. Because then all the GM has to do is include, uh, you know, clues or a trail right. every now and then. The breadcrumb trail. That, that pays off. Sorry? The breadcrumb trail that, you know, your character will endlessly pursue even to the, <laughs> to the ends of the earth just because... Uh, you know, that was their goal, and it becomes more meaningful the more you torture them with it. Right, exactly. And I think that a lot of players who... Uh, I, I think that a lot of players who um, haven't really played in a... like Who haven't played with GMs who do that kind of stuff don't realize how sort of emotionally invested... Right. I mean, there is that old-school mentality of role-playing being go and slay the dragon, get the gold, and get out, and... It's sort of just an operation. It's not really, there's nothing personal about it. And that can be satisfying just as a, as a competitive challenge that you're trying to do. And your character can take a lot of personal pride in how effective they are, that kind of stuff. But that is very different than the, uh, what most 
people would probably call the role playing, you know, side of it where you, you invest emotionally and have hooks in your background and in your personal life that are only relevant to your character. Yeah, I agree with that. And you kind of brought up old school games. I actually think that old school games do a fantastic job of, uh, promoting that. And so that's kind of why we see the, uh, the OSR, old school renaissance going on is because old school games tend to be sort of, uh, light enough, um, in terms of mechanical complexity that, uh, players don't, you know, they're able to keep their eye on the role playing ball. So it's, hmm, interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah, because the yeah, system I, the system can become an obstacle to to that kind of stuff if everything is codified into mechanics and and you're too busy juggling those. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and it's the the problem. I don't think it's necessarily a problem intrinsically. I think it becomes a problem though when the mechanics become an ends in themselves, right? So I want my character's goal is to get ten million gold because that's how much it takes to reach level twenty. You know, that, like, it's a shitty goal. Oh, right, yeah. That's like a, a mechanical goal that your character in the world, if you were actually that person, wouldn't even think about or it wouldn't make any sense for that to be the goal. Right. Does that tie in with your, your, uh, feelings on complexity? Um, so I'm actually a, I think complexity gets a, in a way it does. I think complexity actually gets a bad rap a lot of times. Um, cause there's sort of this focus on rules light. And I know I was just play- praising old school games for being rules light. Um, but, uh, I, I think that it kind of can go, you know, a little too far in that direction. Um, because I think that there's actually a lot of utility to games that have a fair amount of mechanical complexity. Oh yeah. So, I mean, in my mind, there's a zone of complexity that you want to stay within and it's enough to give people answers for, you know, tricky questions as a GM, especially you got to have something you can point to or look at to resolve a situation. But uh, at the same time, you don't want to be a slave to this huge text of rules and tables and things that you can't really adapt and without sort of breaking the system and somebody can then be a rules lawyer and try to, argue about it. I think there has to be a a middle ground there. Right, exactly. I don't know if it's necessarily a middle ground. I think part of it comes down to how the text is written. Because the kind of the way that I've said this before is that um, a good system tells you how to do things. A bad system tells you what you can do. Yeah. I was just talking uh, to uh, Tom Jensen, who's sort of a new guy on the the GDG Discord there, and he was pointing, he pointed me to some old, uh, war game books written by a guy named Don Featherstone, who's one of the sort of godfathers of tabletop war gaming. And one of the biggest selling points of that guy's systems was they, they basically instructed you on how to think about everything as opposed to telling you the procedure, the specific procedures mm-hmm. for things. Yeah, I would agree that that's, uh, it's, it's kind of weird because usually we, um, like, at least I have a kind of, like, when I say, when I hear somebody say that something is telling me or somebody is telling me how to think, I usually kind of have a negative reaction to that. But that's kind of how you have to design a game. Is it, there should be a sort of internal logic to the system. 
and everything in the system, all of the rules should be pointing to that internal logic. I know for the, so, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, in my system, I've, I started out with a hopelessly complex ambition of having discrete and very specific rules for how everything was going to work. Cause I thought that meant it was a better system. And over time, it's definitely been one revelation after another that you just have to let go of that. And it's so much better to have a guideline in some situations than a hard and fast rule or set of procedures you have to do. And then people will, that's the beauty of not designing a video game and designing a tabletop game where humans mm. interpret it and actually you can tell them how they're supposed to interpret the rules. And it's like if they're not obeying the rules, then they're not playing the game. Yeah, I agree. Um, the, so, and so can we talk about a little bit about, um, some of the benefits of mechanical complexity? Cause I do think that there are uh, quite a few. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. I mean, I, I, I like the idea of a very robust, deep system that is very sure of itself and has answers for everything. Uh, in terms of personally running that kind of game and, and forcing the players to learn it and stuff, I see the hurdles and obstacles to it as well. So there's definitely a trade-off, I would think. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the benefits of a, uh, of a mechanically complex system is that it creates sort of little, um, it, it creates little asymmetries. Uh, and so in, you know, I, I'm, I'm using, uh, kind of the physics definition of asymmetry. Um, if basically the idea is that any, any way that you can compare something, if, so for instance, um, usually we think of a geometric, right? So a circle is symmetrical because any way that you cut it, uh, it, if you, if you cut it in half, any direction, it will be the same. Right. Um, but with a square, there's only, uh, you know, if you, well, actually, a square is a bad example. Uh, triangle is a better example. So if you uh, cut an isosceles triangle in certain ways, then it won't be symmetrical. Right. Right. So an asymmetry is just something that differs in a given direction. And I think that that's kind of what creates the uh, the texture of uh, a world that feels real. Because huh. in real life, there everything is, even if, two things are theoretically, you know, the same. They all have uh, their own unique differences, right? So all humans are kind of, they're in the same category, but we all have our differences. And uh, I think that the benefit of, uh, to me at least, the benefit of um, mechanically complex systems is particularly pronounced in character creation, right? Um, so games that have... Uh, a lot of options in character creation. As long as those options are equally valid, um, then I think that that's a great way of making a world feel, you know, the game world at least, feel real. Because, you know, everybody has kind of their own way of doing this. And um, it's, uh, it, it, that's, that's kind of the thing that I think a lot of old school games have trouble with, is that every fighter basically does the same thing. Oh, right, yeah. I see what you mean. Right. So to, to kind of make this a little less abstract, I mentioned before we started recording um, that GURPS is my favorite system. You weren't joking um, about that, right? No, I actually was not. Uh, and it gets a bad rap for a lot of these things. But uh, I think that it, I, I think that a lot of that is undeserved. And 
one of the benefits is exactly what I was talking about is that, um, because it's balanced against, you know, reality it, it, to a certain extent, um, anything that your character does feels different from something else that a different character does, right? So shooting, um, one of the, the, uh, writers for groups actually uses this as an example. Shooting a gun feels different from, you know, uh, shooting a lightning bolt or, uh, shooting a crossbow because they all have different effects and, uh, different, um, sort of mechanical underpinnings. Oh, right. Because the system is complex enough to make those distinctions mechanically. Then exactly. the whole world becomes more textured and more, um, forces you in a way on a, on a role playing level, forces you to consider differently and invest attention into your surroundings differently when you know that guy has a gun and that guy has a crossbow and those two things are different, for example. Exactly. Yep. Now, I, um, I would think the opposite of that, if I, maybe I'm getting this mixed up, but I'm pretty sure I was reading recently the Savage Worlds uh, book and it was like the exact opposite was true. It, the whole goal of that system was to make things indistinguishable and there's actually just a certain handful of um, spells or rules or powers, as I think they call them. And it specifically says that it's interchangeable to have, like, the defense spell. If you're playing in a sci-fi setting, it's you go ahead and flavor it however you want. It's, a you know, an electrical defense matrix that comes up and protects you. Or in an ancient fantasy setting, it's a it's a magic bubble that, you know, protects you and they specifically advertise it as being mechanically exactly the same but your character and your setting is responsible for flavoring it in a way that uh makes it unique. Yeah, that's uh that's actually a pretty common approach I find. I've um personally I've not played Savage Worlds. I really I would like to because I've heard very good things about it. Um I am familiar with uh one game that kind of does something similar that I'm a little more familiar with is Fate. Oh yeah. I've heard about Fate. Um, I've never looked into it. Yeah. So, and it's, it kind of does something very similar. Um, another, uh, something that kind of does, well, I was going to say, uh, the, uh, Mage, Mage, uh, the, the White Wolf games, Mage the Ascension, okay. Mage the Awakening. Um, but they, they're doing something a little bit different, I think. Now that I'm thinking about it. But the, the point um, would be with something like Savage Worlds, the reason why they would advertise that is because obviously you can suddenly make it simpler for kids who want to play or somebody who doesn't want to memorize or can't memorize enough to handle the complexity of a more complex system, which is why right. I find it a little bit interesting that in a Pokemon system, you're, if I'm assuming that you're applying a complex system to that um well my so here's sort of my um my litmus test for uh mechanical complexity so i think mechanical complexity is actually fine but the the really big but i i don't like referring to charts in the middle of combat either um i i hate that as much as the next guy so my litmus test is whether it can reasonably be written down on it hmm. so you don't necessarily have to memorize the chart you just have to memorize the part that applies, or, you know, you just have to write down the part that applies to your character and memorize that. And I think that that's sort of the, um, I, I, I think that that's really, honestly, a, the best way to handle that. 
And it's a good, it's a way of implementing mechanical complexity while still keeping your game playable. Yeah. If I think about, from what I understand about Pathfinder and, you know, what I've read about GURPS, it's a very broad amount of selection, but in the end, the, you don't have to learn a lot of different, entirely different systems. So it is more about what, which of those many, many unless options. You're the GM. Unless you're the unless GM. You're the, yeah. Well, how does that change? Because I've never, I've never done GMing that much. So, uh, well, I was, uh, that was kind of a joke, but, um, it basically, if you're the GM, your, your job changes a little bit because what you, so in GURPS, one of the things that, so like, you know, compared to, uh, D&D fifth edition, um, you can basically hand a player the book, uh, leave them alone for 30 minutes and come back, take their character sheet and be ready to roll. Um, you can't really do that in GURPS because basically you need to know all the parts of the system that relate to all the players here. Mm, right. And I think, I think that's why a lot of them, you know, a lot of these sort of mechanically complex games, uh, get a bad rap, uh, is because they, they require a lot of GM investment. Oh, yes. And then when the GM, you know, is frustrated with the system or feels like they're overwhelmed, they don't want to do that much work. Obviously, uh, a lot of people, the GM is the one that recruits people into the, the session, so you'll have a bad rap right off the hop with the, with the, basically the core people that are going to, um, evangelize your system. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that that's definitely a uh, legitimate problem. And, um, it, it's one of those things, I think that Pathfinder kind of gets around this a little. I actually dislike Pathfinder, um, go figure. But I think one of the ways it gets around this is it has a ton of published material. And I think that that's why... So basically, it, it kind of goes back to uh, you only have to memorize what's written down, right? So right. in Pathfinder, they actually have material that's written down for the GM. And that's what, you know, mod in, in the form of modules and bestiaries and all the rest of that. Um GURPS doesn't really have that kind of support, and I think that that's why it's uh, not played as much as it should be. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so, to you know, I to kind of bring it back to the uh, Pokemon system, I actually um, I actually tried to uh, avoid mechanical complexity uh, as I could. Uh, the only the main problem that I'm having, I actually don't think that I have that much mechanical complexity. I know we just spent a fair amount of time talking about that in GURPS. Um, so the, the, cause the, the main thing I focused on with that was playability. Uh, so if you, if you want to, I could, um, go into character creation a little bit. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. So essentially the, um, essentially you, for, to make your trainer, um, all the trainers have the same stats as the Pokemon. So trainers have HP attack, defense, special attack, special defense, speed. Hmm. Okay. Um, and so that, that's just a way to make it easier to, uh, for, you know, cause you know, at some point somebody's going to want to kick a Rattata or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And then you, you know, you have to have a way of resolving that. Um, so, uh, you also have seven skills. We talked about skills a little bit more, uh, a little bit at the top, excuse me. Um, and so those skills, I based them off of the different types of trainers that you encounter in the game. So the skills are, uh, it's not super important, but it's arts, art, athletics, occult, 
So social, science, Pokemon, and was that seven? I wasn't was counting, nine. but uh, <laughs> yeah, things along those lines. Oh, and survival is the seventh one. Um, so basically, they kind of epitomize the different archetypes uh, that you have of different the different trainers that you meet throughout the game. Yeah, I like the sound of that already. Yeah, so it's it's fairly simple. And so then you put points into it, and basically every time you put a point into a skill, you have to pick a specialty within that skill. Hmm. So say that you put a point in your to your Pokemon skill, um, you then pick a specialty. So you might say, I want to specialize in electric. So you say, okay. Uh, and then your skill, you get a plus five. Well, it would, it really, it would be a minus five roll, uh, because you're trying to roll under. Right. So minus five to whatever you roll. And so then when you roll within your specialty, you get an additional minus five for each point that you have in that specialty. So if you have one point in Pokemon and that point is an electric Pokemon, you get a minus five anytime you roll against, you know, to know something about Pokemon or to handle a Pokemon or anything like that. But then when you deal with electric Pokemon, you get a minus 10. Interesting. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm think of that's not too different from how I wanted to uh, handle specialization of skills in my own system, but that's a uh, that's a pretty decent system. And then you're with this, how much of this would be like right upfront in character creation, and how much of it evolves over time? So um, the way that I am handling that right now is you get ten points. So players have levels, just like their Pokemon. Uh, the main difference is that players level based off of their Pokemon's. So, um, what I have right now, and this is part of what I'm trying to see in playtesting is how it evolves over the course of a campaign, is for every five levels that a Pokemon that you own gains, you know, gained amongst any Pokemon that you own, I should say, um, you gain a level. So you start with ten character points, and those can be used to raise either your skills or your attributes. So you can, uh, if you want to, you can put them into speed or, uh, attack. Um, you know, kind of like the martial artists. Right. Right. So train, train alongside your Pokemon if you like. Hmm. Um, and so your boots or your skills, uh, you get 10 points at the beginning of character creation. So at level one, you start with 10 points that to distribute between those as you see fit. And then every level you get an addition. That makes sense. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, did that, did that all come across? Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of what the next topic is going to be here. Um, we want to talk about some randomness, and I, I remember you ten, talking about uh, the character creation in D and D. Sounded like you mm-hmm. didn't like the dice rolling uh, mechanic of generating a character in D and D. Yeah, we can uh, we can talk about that a little bit. Um, I, I kind of have a love hate relate with rolling for stats uh, because, on the one hand, the thing so the thing that I don't like about point by in uh, a class-based system is that uh, all the characters... Yeah. Right? So if you have a bard, he's always going to in charisma. Yes. And then, like, you know, 16 in dexterity, and then followed by constitution, strength, and then uh, intelligence or wisdom, depending on whether he wants to focus on, you know... Fo- right. It's a balancing, uh, you know... There's basically a necessity to, to min-max in a certain way when you can do point by. Right, because, you know, in order to be able to keep up with everybody else, you basically have to do that. And the argument I've heard people say that, you know, that is the skill of D&D as a game, is how much you can maximize your 
character mm-hmm. and your subclasses and your, you know, your different traits and feats and stuff that you can pick. That's, they take a, a, a direct pride in being able to maximize those things, which is why you have a whole school of thought against that, which is roll everything and you have to take whatever it is. But I don't like that idea either. Yeah, because the, the problem with that ends up being, uh, you know, let's say, let's say you want to play a bard and then you roll an eight for your charisma. Well, you're going to be a shit bard now. Yeah. You know, you might be, you might be an alright fighter, but you wanted to play a bard. Why would your character even be a bard if he doesn't have any charisma? Exactly, yeah. Um, and I think that, and so I think that what the, I, I'm very sympathetic though to the people who want to roll. Because I think that goes back to what we were discussing earlier, that idea of asymmetries in, uh, sort of, in, in reality. Right. right? Cause like when, when everybody isn't, you know, in real life, people aren't min-max, right? Like some people, <laughs> right. Some people just have weird stat districts, you know? Um, and I think part of the necessity of min-maxing comes from, uh, the classes, actually. Well, absolutely. I'm, I'm personally I, avoiding classes in my own system, and to whatever extent your character becomes uh, specialized, it's a choice you make as you're playing, not something right. you pick off the bat. And then, you know, if you uh, if you fail at it, then you know your your character is permanently useless. Yeah, I, 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 uh, strongly, strongly support that because I think that the sort of dream of getting an easy to, easy to play, uh, classless system is, uh, a ve- very, very real because, uh, classless system, I, like the, the whole tension of roll versus point by, I think comes from that structure. Yeah. And that's where something like GURPS, which is, uh, you know, point by, but a, a lot of it is, limited um based on the gm's decisions of the setting i appreciate how they tried to set it up if you read it in sort of the way it's intended it's it feels to me like they're advocating a realistic trade-off and the fact that you take negative traits to offset your positive traits will make mm-hmm. your character inherently balanced supposedly i haven't tested it out and i haven't actually I haven't tested it out at all but in theory your character becomes very interesting. The more powerful they are, the more they have disadvantages. And then the, obviously the GM can use all of that to, to create hooks and challenges that you, your character won't feel like they're just a min-maxed character because it, it's entirely circumstantial whether they're, you know, being far-sighted or near-sighted or something will come into play. It's, it's a flaw they have that can be used in the construction of the, the campaigns and stories. Yeah, and that so that's actually one of my other favorite features of GURPS is that uh it's um like the character your sort of character personality and how your character is is baked into the character creation process. Yeah, right? I appreciate so, that because I've seen guys I know some people who they have no problem role playing, but they don't want to really role play anything if it's not officially what their character is about and it's not recorded somewhere because they don't hmm. they really don't enjoy the sense of improvising a lot. They want to instead have a determined character that they, they will role play it exactly as it is written on the sheet, but anything that's not on the sheet, they're not going to role play basically. 
Yeah, I, and I think that GURPS is actually for getting people, getting for a couple, not just this reason. I think there's a few other reasons, um, but I won't go into those unless we want. Sorry, you, what, what, what was the topic? Or on the sheet in black and white. Oh. So it's, uh, it, it kind of is a very good, I find that it's really great for teaching new players how to role play. Oh yeah, I can see that because, and then these are new, newer players that I'm talking about here too, so maybe that's the correlation. Hmm. Yeah, cause like a lot of people feel kind of goofy, like just, like, what, what do I do? Do I just pick a voice? Do I, you know, like, do I have to, like, do I have to start dressing a certain way? Like, do I have to, you know, gesticulate a certain way? Or um, even just stuff like so, my character in the world, you know, why would I roleplay that he's clumsy and he, you know, banged into something if that's not a disadvantage, you know, that my character has officially, you know, it's like my character, you know, you don't really yeah, feel the like... the idea of, like, purposefully gimping your character for the sake of... Or gimping your ability to do stuff in the world for the sake of an interesting character, like, that's a very tricky skill um, if it's not sort of baked into the system. Yeah, because you're not necessarily... there's. I think there's a whole class of players who... They're not really into the escapist power fantasy of role playing, but at the same time, it feels like it's either that or you go fully into the method acting, um, doing a funny accent and, you know, <laughs> there's like a, it's hard to get that middle ground again where your character has definitive things they are good and bad at and even quirks and, you know, sort of oddball characteristics, but you still take the character seriously and you're not just trying to get your friends to laugh or something like that. Right. Yeah. Cause like in, um, in the group that I currently play in, at least, um, if a character has any sort of flaw, it becomes exaggerated and like, it becomes disruptive. Like, mm. uh, you know, like the classic trope of the dumb barbarian who just likes drinking and fighting. And so like, Anytime something is, doesn't involve those two things, the player just checks out. Yeah, they refuse to even cooperate with the logic of the situation because they've got this sort of uh, entertaining ace in the hole that they can pull out any time. Right, exactly. And so, like, there, I think there's also, like, I think you were just talking about, like, there's this idea that, you know, if it's not, my character drinks and he likes drinks ratings, I dealing with situations outside of that, then I don't know how to... It's kind of like an insecurity, like not knowing exactly how to function. Right, and to me, that's one of the key things about, as a designer, somebody who wants to design a role-playing game, I can't help but empathize with different player types that just literally are uncomfortable at the table because you have to go outside a comfort zone if you want to role-play you know, a vulnerable character who has ambitions and whatever, and chances are that the actual group of humans you're sitting with at the table have never seen you, you know, act vulnerable before, because that's not cool. Mm. Why would you do that? Right, exactly. And I think that kind of gets into what I think is the real strength of tabletop games, which is, um, it, it's a, it's essentially a structured way for group storytelling. Right. And that's, go ahead. Oh, yeah, so I think, you know, like, we talked a little bit about, like, the sort of old school, uh, hack and slash, you know, uh, the dungeon logistics, yeah, dungeon rating, logistics focused gameplay. Um, 
And so, you know, I think that that's missing out on a certain, uh, like the, uh, you know, a lot of the strengths of the tabletop uh, method. But at the same time, even that is kind of telling a story, you know? Yeah. Like, um, so to, you know, Tucker's Kobolds is, uh, legendary for that reason, right? I don't know what Tucker's Kobolds are offhand. Oh, I know I've heard um, of it. It's, it's the story of basically this GM, uh, it, it's some, I think somebody posted it on TG years ago, but, uh, essentially, um, he was, he was back when he was in the military, he and some guys had a, I think this was a second edition campaign. And so the GM had a multi-floor mega dungeon set up and the first floor, uh, oh, and the GM's name was Tucker. Uh, and so the first floor were these kobolds. And so they were the, basically they became legendary for being the nastiest fuckers you have ever seen in your life. <laughs> okay. Now I do uh, remember like, this. I've heard, yeah, I've yeah, heard somebody it, explain it, this before. Yeah. For anybody, basically for anybody who isn't familiar with the story, they like used, they had traps set up. They never engaged in direct confrontation. Basically, they were the smartest, uh, dungeon monsters you've ever seen. Cause the, right. Cause Tucker was basically, uh, using real knowledge of guerrilla warfare and stuff to. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so like all, all of these guys were, you know, military guys. So they had to use tactics and, you know, different, like, and so, um, eventually it got to the point where there's kind of a, um, towards the end of the story, there's this, uh, uh, sort of anecdote about, uh, when they were like ninth level or something crazy like that. Like they were, they were pretty high up there. Um, they'd just gotten through fighting these demons and stealing their stuff. And so they were trying to figure out how to get all the crap that they just looted out. And, uh, they couldn't figure out a way to do it without, uh, you know, going back through the kobolds. And, uh, it, you know, the story kind of recounts how like the party, the party leader was almost in tears about having to go back and face these kobolds <laughs> after, uh, you know, fighting off these ninth level demons. Yeah, the demons are much less scary than this. Um, and I, I imagine that going back to the the point about um, role playing being possible even in these old systems is that the the way that you handle and present situations is still going to be what creates these emergent stories that aren't scripted ahead of time, but they are mm. memorable and they are worth recounting, obviously, as we now all know about Tucker's Cobalt. Right, exactly. And so I think that that's um, having a structure for... Because, you know, I think that um, it, it's a lot of... I think that that's very beneficial in a lot of ways because... Um, so sort of... My, I, I started talking about this uh, before I got into Tucker's Cobalt's, but the way that I view tabletop gaming is as a, I, I think you said it really well, an emergent, uh, structure for, or a structure for telling emergent stories. Right, yeah. Um, and so, uh, storytelling is one of the, it's one of the things that's fundamental to being human. And so, when you are able to get everybody to, you know, sit down and, uh, really engage with whatever story you're telling, I think that that creates a sort of, uh, magical feeling to the, to the proceedings. It does. And, and I'm, in, I in remember that. Go ahead. No, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah. Well, it does that in a way that, um, I don't think video games are able to. Oh, and, no. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think that that's really the reason why so many people focus on system 
you know, like the system matters people, which I think most people in GDG would fall into. Yeah, um, I would think so. Cause, uh, you know, cause we're designing our own systems. I, I think that that's the strongest argument they have. Cause if a system doesn't support that sort of emergent storytelling possibility, at least, then, uh, it's, uh, a sub-optimal system. Yeah, I'm reminded of one of the only times I've played Dungeons and Dragons because I've never found it to be a very uh, appealing system. Uh, and I've watched people play it enough that I just was I, I want a different experience out of role playing. So, but I have played it, and uh, one of the things that I do inherently when I'm playing even something like that, our, our our party was going through a dungeon and. You know, it was very standard fare. It might have even been from some specific module or something like that. But like, I look for opportunities to not just role play for the sake of having a monologue in the middle of a inappropriate situation or something, but to try to interact with the environment and the logic of the situation in a way that, that creates a story that has nothing to do with the mechanical, you can and can't do this. It's like, um, one of the, and everybody else in the group, I was sort of the new player at the group and they've been doing it for a while. Everybody else had a very standard min max, uh, get in, get out, sort of get the XP mentality. So, but then at the same time, I was thinking, well, what are they, how are they going to react when I, I do something off the cuff that clearly isn't necessary mechanically, but it's interesting that, so I would like go to, doors in the dungeon and I would knock on them (laughs) and everybody was laughing their ass off because it was inconceivable to them that you would not just barge in and sort of take this standard approach to it. And I'm like, no, my character wants to knock on it, see if he can hear anything and, you know, sort of uh, provoke something without having to open the door. I had a logic for why I was doing it. And, you know, in fifth edition, um, the, D- the DM has the, the option to give inspiration if something is particularly, uh, you know, inspiring, I guess is what the point is. And so, you know, I got inspiration for knocking on a door. <laughs> That's sort of like, to me, that sort of proved my point when I was going in there that it was this sort of suffocating experience of, yeah, we already know the routine. This is a game and we're all going to do our role in, the party, but the potential for telling more interesting stories and having personal, um, a personal touch to things was still there. And that is true probably of, you know, the oldest OSR sort of, uh, games. In fact, it might even be more true because when you have so little mechanically to go off of, you, ha- you're forced to improvise. And that means being a little bit creative and contributing something more. Yeah, I, I really think that, so you said you played 5th edition? Yeah. Have you, um, out of curiosity, have you played Pathfinder? Or, um, no, I, I, I don't even know anybody that plays Pathfinder, so I've never had that opportunity. It's very strange. I, um, in the area that I live in, Pathfinder is almost the only thing that anybody plays. Hmm. So, and, um, none of my, like, current circle of friends have played anything really besides Pathfinder. Um, and as the guy so, that always GMs, I imagine that's why uh, you've got so many opinions about uh, the the ins and outs of what the system <laughs> encourages, right? Right. Um, so I'm 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 trying to. Uh, I, I recent I just recently joined this uh, sort of friend group, so I'm trying to 
currently wean them off of uh, Pathfinder and introduce them to other systems that um, maybe allow them to do things that they haven't thought about before. I'm wondering if you've um, ever considered, uh, you know, you're making a Pokemon RPG. It sounds really interesting, honestly, but do you ever want to just do the Heartbreaker, uh, you know, derivative sort of of D&D or Pathfinder? I've honestly never felt that inclination. Um, I, I'm not really sure why. Uh, the So kind of the way that I got into tabletop RPGs is um, I, I really wanted to, ever since I found out what D&D was, I instantly knew that I wanted to play it. But my growing up, my family was extremely religious. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mom would not let me touch D&D with a 20-foot pole. Well, that's good. And, I mean, know, that I... way your soul didn't get corrupted by it. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, in retrospect, uh, you know, um, dodged a bullet. But <laughs> at the time, I was very salty about it. And uh, I... <laughs> so, basically, my first experience playing it, you know, playing any system was me making up a system. So, oh, yeah. Because I... Uh, and I, it, it it kind of mirrors what I'm doing right now, ironically, because I uh, I played uh, Final Fantasy and Chrono Trigger on my DS, and I was like, all right, I'm I'm gonna get a game going. So I basically was, you know, my very first RPGs were games that I made up. Um, so and you managed to have people who were actually willing to play with you and indulge this crazy idea of you designing your own. Yeah, uh, fortunately, I'm the oldest sibling, and I have two younger brothers. Oh, man, okay. So. That explains it. <laughs> they had very little choice. I would have loved that for my older brothers to actually be creative enough to, to have come up with systems for me to play, because I also didn't have a lot of uh, chances to play a lot of interesting games. And, and I definitely, yeah. when I got to a point where you know, I, I wanted to start designing my own, now I'm trying to rope them into uh, playing it and stuff like that, so... Mm. And relatives and whoever you can, you have to try to get into the, into play testing with you, but it's always like they're doing you a favor, but if you're the oldest, you kind of have that advantage. Well, and so the other thing, I started, Jesus, I started, they must have been like six and eight when we started. So like, it was really, I was, uh, 15, I think. Let me think, does that work? Okay, yeah, so one of them must, so they would have been seven and nine. Um, so, one of the advantages was that, I guess, so I was unconsciously, now that I'm thinking about it, imitating D&D, just because I was imitating stuff that itself imitated D&D. Right. Um, and so I guess I got my fantasy heartbreaker out of my system at a very early age. <laughs> but uh, I also I also got my shitty DMing out of my system at a very early age, you know? So yeah, bad habits. My, uh, what? The bad habits. Right, exactly. Like you, you walk into a room. There are three wolves. They attack. Roll initiative. <laughs> you know, like, and, and like my brothers were so young. That's about all they could handle. But, um, you know, they they also don't really remember any of that stuff. Uh, so now, as an, like as an adult, and one of my brothers is an adult now as well. Um, <laughs> they uh, were all able to engage in really. Uh, Really good role playing. Yeah, exactly. You uh, so as, as you, people uh, get more you mature. Need, if you need playtesters, uh, convince your parents to have younger brothers. Mm. Really good way to do it. Great advice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 
Uh, I think I was, I, I was about to mention this. As far as, uh, I, I think one of the real problems that D&D has, to go back to that, and why it's kind of stifling for role-playing, is that we, we kind of drew a line between systems that tell you how to do things and systems that tell you what to do. Right. And I think that the real problem with modern D&D from third edition onward is that it's a system that tells you what to do. Uh, yeah. Not how to do things. Um, because, so this is, this is something that was really striking to me. Um, so like, you know, I, I, the actual published system was GURPS, uh, because, you know, it's generic. So it, it wasn't D&D basically. Mm. Um, so that's the, basically the only thing my mom would let me buy. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's how I essentially got into it. Uh, it turned out that it has a lot of qualities I really admire later. But, um, when I finally, you know, managed to get my hands on some D&D books, one of the things that really surprised me was that um, characters have all of these powers specifically for combat, right? So if you look at, like, a character sheet, wizards have these spells that they can cast, but you have to cast them in a very specific way, and they only work in very specific context. Okay, yeah. Um, and so I think that's why D&D almost always devolves into, you know, it, it, not, not, I shouldn't say almost always, cause then like the people who, <laughs> you know, the, the pe- hardcore, you know, system doesn't matter people come out of the word work, but, um, the people, it, it, it has a tendency, let's say, to, uh, spiral towards combat as the solution. Oh, absolutely. Because the system doesn't really support other ways of handling things. Yeah. I mean, I've got a, I've got a 5e, uh, dungeon master, you know, handbook in front of me right now, and I'm looking through the, uh, creating adventures section, chapter three, and sure does look like a lot of combat, you know. Most of the, most of the thing is about creating encounters, and the encounters are, are largely about combat. So, it's not an illusion that most of your concerns as you're creating adventures there are geared towards combat obviously all of the i mean you just look at the percent of the book that's about optimizing your combat statistics and gaining things mm. you can use in combat it's you can play with without doing a lot of combat and there's you know popular but yeah you're cutting out the meat of the system yeah you're either cutting it out or you're you're sort of teasing players in a way and that's something else i don't mm-hmm. like it's like if if you're going to make a system that's all about combat why are you then pretending like it's also about living the daily life and having emotional, you know, drama between, you know, it's like my personally, I have a philosophy of design where whatever your game is about, you should try to focus on that. And because I'm trying to be considerate of the player, if they came in expecting something, you should give it to them. Right. Yeah. And so like, that's the kind of, that's kind of the, Big problem with a lot of D and D, but well, basically the, the you know we'll we'll say from three point five three point onward is that you know well or we can look at fourth edition. You know, fourth edition probably was the worst about this because it explicitly realized okay, our system already does this, so let's not let's cut out all the illusions and just focus on that and making it really good. And they did a great job with that, but, uh, you know, people kind of, people liked the illusions, I suppose. 
Well, that's exactly it. That that's one of the most fascinating the, the things I find. Plausible deniability. What's that? Plausible the, having plausible deniability. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I don't respect about it is that is that the the real appeal of the system is not explained because it's actually the disconnects and the dissonance you experience as a player where you have these adventures that you know don't require you to interact with the system. It's like you could be playing freeform and it would be the same thing if you're mm-hmm. not, because the system doesn't give you any tools to use really that are interesting. And so, but it gets all this credit for being a, a system that handles, you know, uh, personal introspective drama and stuff like that. And, and it's like, no, it's really a basic system that's about combat and treasure and, you know, loot and stuff. And it's kind of silly to even think otherwise, considering its origins and how awkwardly it's evolved over time. But at the same time, you know, when you ter- sort of take it at face value or take it for a, a granted that this is the system you're going to use to try to do everything, even if it's not appropriate to what the system encourages, it ends up getting all these defenders for, you know, as if the system encourages other things. But uh, personally, when I was approaching you know, trying to design my own heartbreaker kind of idea. I wanted to be more self-aware and honest about what the system really was. And yeah, well, and I think that, well, I I have two thoughts. Um, Firstly, I think that the, uh, I I think that that's actually something that old school D and D does like is really good about is, you know, the, the point of this game is getting treasure. Yes. I love the honesty of that. Yeah, like the the whole mechanic of uh gold equals experience yeah. is beautiful. Um and I honestly kind of if I ever run 5e again, I kind of want to import it to 5e. <laughs> I would love to see that. Cuz I I I don't think you would have to really change that much. You'd have to change the ex- amount of no you actually wouldn't need to change that much. Um cuz the system already kind of apes a lot of old school uh you know, tendencies. Yeah, I didn't play any of the earlier D&D editions, but uh, I definitely heard uh, everybody agree that it was sort of a callback to oldest the oldest editions, but sort of uh, integrating a lot of things that had been, you know, introduced along the way as well. But at its core, it was trying to streamline things and sort of harken back to the original style. Yeah, I think that the way that it did that is by cutting out basically all the rules for anything that isn't combat. Oh, okay. So, if you look at old, so I've actually read old school. I haven't gotten to run it as much as I would like to. Um, I've run it a little bit, but uh, if you look at old school D and D, one of the things that's really interesting is that there really aren't that many rules for uh, almost anything. Um, you know, there's sort of minimal rules for combat. There's uh, the, the probably the thing that there's the most rules for are is collecting treasure. Um, yeah. Wow. Because that's what the character's goal was. You know, the monsters were sort of incidental to. And so, three point, uh, third edition is tried to, uh, turn D&D into a simulation. As, mm. as near as I can tell. Right. Um, so that, that's where all the rules came from. And so they codified a lot of things. And so the way that fifth edition streamlined it was by cutting out all the rules for anything that wasn't combat. So like social rules, uh, you know, crafting rules, basically, Anything where you weren't rolling initiative, rules got cut out for that. I guess that explains why I've seen a lot of people still preferring uh, third edition to this day. 
Yeah, I think I do think that that's part of it. Um, because and actually, in a way, fourth edition kind of did the same thing, except they instead of uh, you know, just cutting out the rules, they essentially tried to make better rules, which was I think the big mistake they made, because um, in fifth edition the rules are very similar to third edition, but very slimmed down. Right. So it, for the the sort of cutting out of anything besides combat, as, as near as I can tell, uh, really happened in fourth edition, and then third edition took that up, uh, cut it down even. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I try to tell people if they're designing uh, a role playing game to be more self aware and sort of avoid that fate of starting a game saying you're going to have you know just some solutions to what you don't like in D&D, and then mm. it ends up bloating into all these other things, and you end up almost recreating the same arc that they had <laughs> as, a, as a company. You're like, well, now I'm going to codify all of this, and then I'm going to codify that, and then eventually you cut it all back, and it's just a combat system again. And it's good to have, yeah. you know, as a designer, it's a very tricky abstract thing to design a RPG because obviously the you're going to hand it off to GMs and those GMs are going to interpret things and add their own twist on it. Um, but that's sort of one of the common things we've talked about on the, this podcast so far. And that comes up in design discussions on GDG is, you know, a lot of people come in as the GM and basically saying, what would I like to run as a GM? Uh, but in a way you have to design on a higher level than that yet and have, a multitude of different GMs who might want to run it a different way. And if you don't have that really clear vision at the start, that's very honest and structured, you're going to end up promising a lot of things and not actually delivering on them in the mechanics. Yeah. Um, so, well, you know, to take, uh, to take the Pokemon system that I'm working on as an example, um, I'm not sure, I don't think it was this server, I think it was a different server, but, uh, I posted the rules that I had written up for it, and uh, I got some blowback, um, because, and, you know, rightfully, because, uh, I, all, the only rules that I had in the current edition, so to speak, of the write-up was for combat, right? right? And so, you know, when, which isn't really a role-playing system. It's great for recreating a, in the context of this, it's great for recreating a, a video game on tabletop, but that's mm. not a role playing system. Right. So. It's more like a board game at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had those rules, I just hadn't, you know, codified them and written them down. And so, to me, they seem obvious because they're kind of extensions of how I tend to run my games. Right. But when I post them, you know, to random image boards or whatever, um, other people don't necessarily have those rules or, you know, they don't have those intuitions. They have different intuitions because they've played different games. So commu- clearly communicating, uh, clearly communicating the expectations for how to use the system, I think is super key. And actually along those lines, I have a kind of funny anecdote. I, um, I ran a fifth edition campaign for about two years actually. Um, and c- partly because that I was with wouldn't switch to anything else. Yeah. Um, so it kind of, I, I think that's one of the other reasons that uh, D&D is very easy to, or is very commonly used is because there's a sort of inertia 
that sets in when you start using it, and it's very difficult to switch to anything else. Yeah. I mean, um, why why fix it if it isn't broken? Right, yeah, because, you know, if you start meddling with stuff, then you might not necessarily make it better, but it's very easy to make things a whole lot worse. Yeah, and even as a group of people sitting around the table, it's like, well, we're kind of having fun with this. Why don't we just keep doing it? Like, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. But, um, so I, I kind of, it, the Dungeon Master's Guide was actually the last book that I got, uh, because I kind of felt like I didn't need it, uh, which turned out to be correct. <laughs> but, um, I, when I was pain, before I understood how, like, so like, like you said, you were looking at the Dungeon Master's book a little bit ago. They have extensive rules on how much experience everybody should get and how quickly they should get that experience. Yeah. Um, by the book, you're supposed to be having eight combats a level. Or eight or encounters. Eight combats, I'm which... sorry, I'm sorry, eight encounters a, a day. You know, so call it like uh, an adventuring session, mm-hmm. which is distinct from a playing session. So you're supposed to have eight combats per adventuring session. And I was like, God, why are they tearing through everything so easily? Because like I tried, you know, having bigger squat hordes. I tried having bigger monsters. I tried both, and they just like whatever I put in front of them, they just tore apart. Like they were freaking wood chippers. Yeah. Um, and the other thing was that they were not leveling. At all. Like, uh, they, it took them, uh, they were level one for like a whole month playing weekly. Wow. And it took them, like, it took us a few months to get to level four. Um, and, you know, we were having fun because we were role playing and like, you know, building, building the world. But I was like, you know, I'm pretty sure this is not how the system is meant to be, is meant to be run. Like, why are they taking so long to level? And so, I consulted the, uh, I consulted the Dungeon Master's Guide and I, the number they were supposed to be having was just absurd to me. Right. Um, and so I started trying to, you know, I started trying to follow those guidelines a little bit more. So and, you had um, been, you had been giving them, you know, a, an amount that you felt just personally as somebody who had been a GM before was realistic and appropriate. Because it's absurd yeah, I, to have I was so much otherwise. Combats that fit with, uh, you know, what I felt was, it made sense from a story standpoint. Yeah, but what about the, the whole argument? I've heard people say where, uh, it's not actually combat, it just has to be an encounter and you give them experience just for, you know, talking to somebody and, and getting them to agree to help you or role playing a certain well, thing. I- I would agree with that if there were, uh, you know, abilities or mechanics that supported that. Mm-hmm. So as it stands, um, the so in fourth edition you got experience for. I, I don't remember if this was the case in third edition, but in fourth edition you got experience for disarming traps, and they took that out of fifth edition. Huh. So, you know, or like, okay, let's take the social encounter thing, like giving experience for social encounters. Um, that doesn't make any sense because none of the stuff that they get for leveling up helps them in social encounter. Oh, right. Yeah. So you would expect the feedback cycle to be that you get better at something as you master it through difficult experiences, but you don't get better at, at social encounters. Right. So your ability to overcome a social encounter is exactly the same at level 20 as it is at level one. Except that, uh, presumably your bonuses to certain roles. I mean, you can, you can, 
Well, okay. I, I guess I should qualify that, you know, so like you'll get better, you'll probably get better skills as your proficiency bonus improves and you will, um, you know, like in the context of the game, your character will gain, you know, repute and renown. Right. So like, but none of those things, I, I, I suppose the, um, the proficiency bonus is a slight counter to what I'm saying. But it's a very dull and almost arbitrary feeling thing. Right. And it's, you know, compare that to like a thief's sneak attack, right? So like, that's a very interesting thing that scales as they level up. Yeah. Or like the barbarian's rage and or something. You, you need to have like, there needs to be, and I think this is the big thing. It's context dependent. Yeah. So anytime you can, so you have to do very specific things in order to be able, like there has to be a specific situation to be able to use a sneak attack, um, in order to use your social role or, you know, uh, what would it be? Your diplomacy role. Um, the only, like there's basically no prerequisite. Any situation where you are doing a social, in, you know, where you're trying to be diplomatic, you roll diplomacy. Yeah, there's so many opportunities. I, this is one of the reasons why I got so frustrated initially and I wanted to make my own heartbreaker was because the, uh, the times when something became relevant and, you know, the, the effective player who knows these systems inside and out, he knows how to abuse them essentially doing the diplomacy sort of route and having an answer all the time because he just knows he can say he wants to do something, roll a dice, and there's a certain percent chance he'll succeed at it. It was such, such a baffling oversight, I thought, in the design of the system to not have at least guidelines for saying when it's appropriate, when it's not, and not encouraging enough through the system a robust social encounter system. If you are going, If you are going to claim that this system handles both combat and social things and, and all of these other things, you know, yeah, how about, well, how about not, giving us say, some mechanics? I was going to say, it's not just combat and social encounters. Uh, there's, if you open up the, like one of the first pages in the DMG is about how there are these seven pillars of gameplay. Oh, right. Or, yeah. yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I have seen that before. I'm going to try to find it again here. Yeah. I, I don't have my books to hand. Um, but like, you know, they, they talk about how there's like players who like exploration and social encounters and combat and puzzle solving. And, um, there's not like, but there isn't any support for those things, mm -hmm. you know? And, and like, I think it's, it's not just, uh, that there's not mechanics for it, but that there's no guidelines for how the players should interact with those things in the context of the world. Yeah. I, I think that you, I, I don't remember what we were talking about, but something you'd mentioned earlier in the uh, podcast, I think nails it. Um, it's it, like, there's nothing to force the players to, uh, actually engage with and pay attention to, uh, or there, I suppose there's no mechanical reward for players maintaining, uh, you know, I guess an awareness of the context of things going on in the game world. Yeah, it it feels divorced. One hundred percent up to the DM. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and yet people, you know, as long as they can, that that's sort of the one of the things I find aggravating about uh, the discussion around D and D, of course, is that the accumulated wisdom 
and we've talked about this on, on a previous podcast, but the accumulated wisdom of all these GMs who have run what essentially are bad systems that are disconnected in many ways and, and have evolved in these sort of awkward ways to be a, a jack of all trades, even though they were really only supposed to be about one thing initially, that kind of stuff, is that GMs learn how to make bad systems fun. And that becomes the wisdom that gets passed on. If you're a good GM, you essentially knows how to know how to squeeze, you know, blood out of a stone. It's like this, <laughs> it's not designed to do this, but if you're good enough, you can make it interesting to be a social person in D and D for example. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. And as a system designer, I have, you know, the, I have a lot of respect for people who put up with that. But I want to make it my mission to be the the best friend of the GM and, you know, do as much as I can to help them, whether it's with guidelines or whether it's with optional rules or with its, you know, just core mechanics or whatever, try to help them actually easily facilitate these different goals that you would have as a GM, these different kinds of adventures, the different aspects of adventures, not just have, you know, one sort of gimmick or or thing that a mechanic system that I'm proud of. And there you go. Now, you know, use your vast knowledge of how to GM to make this fun, <laughs> but, you know, create a bridge for them or something. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a really, um, that's a really good point. And kind of having that human knowledge of, you know, I suppose what, how people will interpret things and what things you need to explicitly say and what things you don't is kind of one of the challenges of good game design. Oh, it's a huge challenge. It's a huge yes. challenge. And then, like, the way you present it, the way you... The order in which you present things, um, the length at which you talk about something, like, there's a lot of simple concepts that people will ramble on about for a long time in their material, and the book becomes unwieldy and and... You know, you sort of have this essay that gets written about every single topic. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of challenges in striking the right balance, even in just, even if you have the right ideas, you have good system and a good intention of helping out people to use it. It can still be very hard just to communicate the correct amount of advice and guidelines. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, clearly, Clearly communicating to, I guess, your, you know, to players as well, uh, what, not just what the system is for, but like what kind of characters they should create is also a big challenge. Yeah. If you, if you give them the freedom to make a lot of choices, um, in a sense, this is something I would, I guess I haven't had to put it into practice yet, but I imagine you want to have a sort of, mission to get people on the same page if nothing else like you don't want to tell people what kind of character they should make obviously just you want to tell them how to make a character that's appropriate for what your table is trying to achieve or you know what the system is designed to handle and not handle i i guess yeah well so to kind of yeah and i think a big a big part of that is um genre so i i think a big part of communicating that is genre yeah. Um, so like, you know, uh, feng shui, uh, I, I, a system I have not personally played, but I know it's for, uh, wuxia. So like, I'm supposed to have these sort of, uh, high flying, over the top, 
martial artist characters, right? I wouldn't try to make a, I wouldn't try to make a baker in that. <laughs> right. No, and that, right. that is something, um, that does bring me to what I said last time about my system where I, I had to pick a point for my own sanity, but also for the sake of players to, you know, kind of fess up to it that my system is designed to, you know, handle adventurers in an adventuring setting going on adventure. It's, it's not designed to have the, the fat merchant that, you know, has a strange set of skills that allows him to be effective in a, in this economy or something. It's like, if you're not <laughs> physically fit and willing to go fight dangerous things, that's not what this game is about. And you should just go play something else. It's like, I, I had to set that limit. And so it is very explicit in saying what kind of character essentially you have to make or, or you're just sort of wasting your time playing my system. Right. Well, and I think that that's one of the other, so like, uh, I, I think that that's probably, um, the biggest, uh, sin that Pathfinder commits. So I, um, I, I, I'm not technically a forever GM. Um, I'm currently play a player in a Pathfinder system with, uh, with one of my friends. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the very first character that I ever made in Pathfinder, um, I, so I, I came from fifth edition. Uh, that was my reference point for D and D. Right. I just finished running that system, and um, D and Fifth Edition has uh, is notable for having a pretty slimmed down character creation process. Um, and so I sat down and I, you know, started making my um my character. Uh, the the guidelines I was given were not very uh, explicit at all. Um, from the from the DM, he was oh. just like, oh yeah, just make sure that you're. Character isn't good aligned and they're this level. I'm like, Alright. So I sat down and I start looking through all the stuff. And I was just blown away by the sheer wealth of option that uh the system has. Like you there are so many feats. In and, Pathfinder. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like there there are all these feats and subclasses and uh you know, alternate abilities and like races and all this stuff. And I was just blown away. So I sit down and I'm like, alright, so I'd like to make a, I'd like to make a face character who kind of, um, you know, like a social, like, well, like a social interaction character. Yeah. Like somebody who, because the, it was, it was meant to be an evil campaign, so I wanted to play somebody who, uh, kind of, you know, talked the cops down while everybody else was running. Like a manipulator kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I took, I took feats that allowed me to do that. And, um, I picked a class that would kind of let me focus on that. And I, when I finally started playing the campaign, I was like, wow, my character is useless. <laughs> because in picking those feats for social interaction, I basically hadn't, you know, the, the opportunity cost of that was not picking things that made me effective in combat. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, the, you know, one of the basic assumptions in Pathfinder is that you're going to pick stuff that will make you effective in combat. Oh, right. So, and particularly the way that, um, this campaign was run is that, you know, like it, any sort of social interaction, it, it, it was a, it was a kind of linear story, which is not, I, I don't think that there's inherently a problem with that, but, it makes social interaction skills not really that important because if the player is going to accomplish something, then they accomplish it. 
because the story needs that to happen to progress. You know? Yeah. So um, it was just sort of this wasted character that uh, you were tricked into thinking that these were going to be viable options. Right, because the system told me that they would be. And, you know, maybe if it had been a different kind of campaign, I, I could have been more effective. I doubt it after having played a bit more Pathfinder. Um, but the the system is, it, it, yeah, the system essentially lied to me about what was worth taking. Yeah, I hate I that. Think that's, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's really why I dislike Pathfinder and like GURPS, because in, in GURPS, the, you know, the, it, it, this is actually, so like what we were talking about, about the system not being clear is actually a, a sin that GURPS commits. Um, but GURPS is essentially a game, uh, about, I won't say realistic people, but grounded people, right? Yeah, so kind of. people that, people that you could conceivably meet in real life. Or, which or, is why, you know, depending on the genre you're trying to recreate in there, obviously you can create aliens and robots and all sorts of stuff, but. Right, but like in it, that they are grounded in a certain sense of, um, uh, that there's a good word for this, verisimilitude. Yeah. Um, so, uh, it's, and so it, going along with that, um, if you create a character who's grounded and who has a specialty, so as, uh, you know, focus on that specialty and you'll be very competent in it. Right. Um, Finder, it gives you all of these options and they are not equal at all because the system has certain unspoken assumptions about how you're going to play. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish so I, had, I, I had a chance to play GURPS and, uh, and actually see how it worked because I think in principle the way it's designed is more honest. I mean, obviously the title itself, generic universal role-playing system and the way that they encourage you to agree on a genre and you know, limit certain things you can even pick during character creation just based on, mm-hmm. you know, the, the genre that you're recreating, all that kind of stuff feels a lot more honest. And it's like, yeah, you will be restricted when you're making your character. And that's the point is that we're going to give you all possible things we can think of, but you have to have self-restraint as a player and as a table to say, we're not allowing superhero stuff in this World War II setting or whatever. Right. I, I, that's, well, I think you just articulated, uh, that's another reason why it's my favorite system. Yeah, that's something that people have to learn when they're making, making systems. I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to make a universal system that handles almost everything, including, you know, uh, psychological things, drama, all the, the sort of finer details that you wouldn't get in a combat oriented game. But, you know, Make sure that your whole system supports it because otherwise you're going to lure people into making a character. And one has combat specialty, one has social specialty, one has sort of, uh, climbing and acrobatic sort of stuff. And it's like, you don't actually have the payoff of all of that setup. You need to have both sides. Right. And it actually occurred at, um, so, you know, we talk about generic systems or universal systems, but it, not sure. It might have been on purpose, but I think you've actually hit on a very important limitation of them, which is that, that, uh, you know, we talk about generic systems and universal systems, but even within that context, uh, you still need to specify what type, universal systems are totally doable. 
And generic systems are totally doable. But even within that context, you need to specify a certain type of character that uh, you're going to be using. Right. That, that the system is designed. Yeah. You know, um, sometimes it's called power law. It's a good term for it. Sorry, you cut out there a little bit. Power logic? Is that what you said? Oh, power levels. Oh, power levels. Okay. I, I'm not sure that's necessarily a good uh, term for it because, you know, Goku and Krillin have different power levels, but they're still <laughs> a similar type of character. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't I, know I what to make that's... of that term, power level. I don't I don't know what that's uh, getting at. Um, it just, well, so like, your system, you said, uh, is adventure. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, so for example, fate, to pick a non-GURPS example, mm-hmm. is, uh, it explicitly says in, I think, the introduction that it's focused on characters who are, you know, hot people who do, do big things and, uh, risks. Yeah. Uh, you know, like that kind of stuff. Um, high action. High action, high thrill, high action, um, stuff. GURPS is focused on realistic people, or, uh, people who have a sort of grounded aspect to them. Flawed and nuanced. Right, exactly. Uh, and I haven't read or played Savage Worlds, but I'm sure it has a similar kind of expectation. Yeah. So, creating, uh, creating generic systems, um, I think is, uh, very, very doable. You just have to kind of restrict yourself along that axis. Yeah, and. Which I, I think is kind of what you've been getting at a little bit. Yeah, not only create, you know, the system in a way that handles mechanically the different aspects that you're, but I always see sort of this, this balancing act, like every time you create something on, the one side, you have to pay it off on the other side. Otherwise, there's an imbalance of design where you have all this promise initially of a, things that can happen, but then when it comes to actually executing them and exploring them in the system, whether you're really simulating them based on reality or a genre convention sort of trope thing, either way, you need to have the payoff on the other side or else it's just going to disappoint people really yeah no argument here well i think that's about everything we wanted to talk about we covered a lot of topics and i'm i'm glad that uh unless you wanted to bring up something else we do have more time to talk but um i would be willing to have you back on again uh when your when your next version is released or you want to you know get people maybe to play test it uh something like that yeah um i, I- with this, uh, nothing else really springs to mind. Um, that was a very wide-ranging discussion. Yeah, it's been about two hours, which is great. Um, I, uh, I I think we're going to wrap it up here, and uh, we'll let the people come into uh, flood into GDG and pester you with things if they have questions or or comments or they want to try your uh, plug-and-play Pokemon system or anything like that. All right. All right. Yeah, well, then that was good to me. that was a another great conversation this time with uh, Syntarsis. And come on to the uh, GDG and say hello to him on the on the uh, right now. What he's going by there is ASDF. So you'll type that in somewhere and see his cute little bird picture in the in the channel there. But <laughs> I actually uh, I actually changed my nickname um, 
in the uh, in the channel to uh, go along with this podcast. Oh, okay. So now you're going to be Syntarsis in the channel as well. That'll be great. Yep. All right. So thank you very much for coming on. Um, we'll have you on again somewhere down the road, and have a good one. All right. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it.